Matthew chapter 14. And the title for the message this morning is The Shadow of Death. The Shadow of Death. And you'll remember from uh, last week that we spent considerable time tracing the movement of Jesus in the final year of his public ministry. We got to uh, dust off a portion of our scriptures that uh, we don't get to too frequently, and that was our maps. And, uh, and uh, I heard back from uh, several of you that you really enjoyed that, so that, that encouraged me because I was super nervous about doing that, you know. What are you preaching from? Maps, <laughs> you know. But anyway, I, 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 it's helpful to me, and, I, and several of you told me it was helpful for you, and so I really appreciate the feedback and, and know that, that taking the time to really think seriously about the, uh, the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ is, a, is really helpful to our spiritual lives. It, it takes him out of the realm of the two-dimensional and, uh, and brings him into a three-dimensional realm. You know, that kind of the two-dimensional, that's when you walk into a movie theater and they have that, you know, the cardboard thing standing in the corner of a, of a movie star or something, and it, it's just kind of this flat sort of thing. And I think that, that, that we can kind of have that approach towards Jesus, that he just seems flat on the pages of the scriptures. But taking the time to, to think about him in his humanity really rounds him out for us and, and gives us a more comprehensive picture and accordingly, I believe, a greater love and devotion to the Savior of our souls. And so last week as we were tracing his movements and we saw that he moved in and, and around uh, the, uh, the country, uh, the territory of Palestine, uh, back and forth across political borders or, or state lines, if you want to use a more modern analogy, and, and, uh, and also made several trips outside of the geographical boundaries of the land of Israel into Gentile lands. And we said that he did that really for a pair of reasons. And those reasons were, number one, that he uh, was seeking to avoid a premature confrontation with the authorities. There was a gathering storm of the religious and political authorities of his day, and and Jesus did not want that confrontation to occur at that time. And, he, and uh, he had a plan. And that plan called it for him to die in Jerusalem. And it called it for him to die in Jerusalem at the Passover. And so in order to avoid that premature confrontation, he moved. And he moved a lot. But there was a second reason, and maybe even more important than that. And that is that he wanted to have some time to be alone with his disciples. They needed to be prepared for, for the, the incredible shock of seeing the nation crucify its king. They weren't ready for that. That, that was the furthest thing from their thinking uh, at all. And it's, and it's really kind of hard for us to understand that sometimes. I think, I mean, John read Psalm 22 for us, and, and it's clear it's there as a prophecy of David, of, of his greater son, and yet... Uh, the nation just could not accept that reality. And the disciples, they needed a lot of work. They needed a lot of intense time with Christ in order to prepare them, not just for his death and resurrection, but, but beyond that even for the ministry that would fall to them when he uh, passed it to them. Let me ask you a question. 
don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but, but how did Jesus know he was going to die? How did he know he was going to die? I think the answer to the question is twofold. The first and the obvious answer is it's predicted in the scriptures, right? It's predicted in the scriptures. And it, and it you know, it, it begins at the very earliest of Genesis, chapter 3, where there God speaking says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, speaking to the serpent, but through the serpent to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. The very earliest prediction of the suffering of the coming Messiah. And that prediction is is built on and elaborated as as revelation unfolds, as as the word of God unfolds. And I think Probably one of the most clear passages of Scripture would be Isaiah 53 to speak of the, the death of the, the Son of God, to speak of the death of the Messiah. Where the prophet Isaiah says under inspiration in beginning in verse 3, He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offsprings, he will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Can you imagine What went through Jesus' mind the first time he heard or read that passage and came to realize that it was speaking of him? He was born a child. He grew up in an Orthodox Christian home where the scriptures were were taught and, and read and 
Luke tells us he, he, he grew like a child grows. And at some place along the way, this text, he realized, this is me. And then every time he read it or heard it read from that time on, he knew it was talking about him. How do you know he was going to die? The scripture makes it very plain. It was predicted in the scriptures. But it was also prefigured in the death of John the Baptist. It was prefigured in the death of John the Baptist. And that's what takes us to Matthew 14. The account of the death of John the Baptist. This is a significant event. It is this event that helps Jesus to to realize that now... The time is upon him. Now the time's upon him. The life of, of John and Jesus were very, very closely tied. Very closely tied. Their mothers were related. Luke tells us that in Luke 136. Their mothers were related. They were about the same age. John being merely six months older, right? John himself recognized that the significance of the, of the relationship between the two of them while they were both in their mother's wombs. Filled with the Spirit, we're told in, in John 1, 39 to 44. Filled with the Spirit, John leapt in his mother's womb at the sound of Mary's voice. John's own calling into this world, born in a, in a miraculous way. I mean, born to, a, to these old people who, who couldn't have children. And, and now John is given as a gift. And that gift of that life was that he might prepare the way for Messiah. His own father, Zechariah, predicted that of him. Luke 1, 76. John was fully conscious of that reality because, because when, the, when the Jewish authorities came to him as he, was, as he was baptizing early in his ministry and they said, who are you? Are you Messiah? And he says, no. I'm a voice calling in the wilderness, crying in the wilderness. Make straight the path of the Lord. Prepare the way for Messiah. John 1.23. What was John's message? It was a simple, simple message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? One message repeated over and over again. Same message, by the way, that, that Jesus initially picked up and preached. Matthew 4.17. John's message, Matthew 3. In verse 2, John himself is witness to the, to the Spirit's anointing of Jesus at his baptism to, to prepare and send him forth publicly as the Messiah of Israel. 
Matthew 3, 16 to 17. John knew his ministry was only preparatory. He must increase and I must decrease, he says. John 3, 28 to 30. And it was John's imprisonment that signaled the beginning of Jesus' 18-month Galilean ministry. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. Their lives were very, very closely tied. And it is John's illegal execution for threatening the religious political establishment that signals the clock is now ticking on the final year of Jesus' life. When John was executed, it meant that Jesus' execution was not far behind. So Matthew gives us this account. Matthew 14. Verses 1 to 12. This is a lengthy account, the death of John. And it's a lengthy account because it, it foreshadows the events to come. The hearer or the, or the reader of, of Matthew's gospel is to, is to understand from this what is, going to, what is going to ultimately come to Messiah. This, by the way, is the longest section in Matthew's gospel, other than the birth narrative itself, in which Jesus neither speaks nor acts. Other than the birth narrative, this is the longest section in Matthew's gospel in which Jesus neither speaks nor acts. In a, in a sense, he's, he's in the wings and the main, the main stage, the main spotlight, the main focus is not on him, but on John. Because we're supposed to understand, but based on what happened to John, it's going to happen to Jesus. So I want to trace the drama here in chapter 14 with you this morning. I want to take you through this drama. And it, and it is a drama. And I want to look at it as a, as a five-part drama. Five-part drama. Involving the death of John the Baptist. Why? So that we will understand the urgency for Jesus to begin what we talked about last week, which was his ministry on the move, right? This is the event that gets it all started. Now, to do this, let's just take a moment and, and review the chronology. I did it with you last week. I did it quickly. I'm going to do it again quickly with you this week. I figure if I do it enough times, some of it will stick with us. Matthew doesn't write his gospel in a Western chronological fashion. He moves events around in order to, to, to continue to move forward his theme that Jesus is the King of Israel, the Messiah long predicted to come, and yet the nation refused him. Why? Matthew answers as he unfolds that gospel. The implications of it, Matthew unfolds. 
as he proceeds through his gospel. But beginning here, really, as we said last week, beginning in verse 13 of chapter 14 and moving forward essentially to the end of chapter 20, there is a chronological section. There is a, there is a section in which this event precedes this event precedes this event, and we just sort of move through it, and we looked at that last week. But just to get us thinking again, let me, let me take you through that chronology. So back to chapter 12 and verse 22. I'm not going to go back any further than that, but this section, Matthew 12, beginning in verse 22 and running all the way through Matthew 13 and verse 52 is what is commonly known as Jesus' busy day. It's his busy day. It's when he heals the demon-possessed man who is blind and mute and then it is... A, um, accused of being in league with the devil for the power by which he does that. This is what is commonly called the unpardonable sin or the, or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It signals an intense confrontation that has, that has been bubbling under the surface that now breaks out into the open, resulting in Jesus beginning this new teaching style of parables, predominantly here the parables of the kingdom, and we've looked at them. Following that, in, in verse 54, really 53 is kind of a transition verse, 54 to 58, Jesus makes uh, his last visit to the town in which he grew up, Nazareth, and there they refuse him, and that's it. He'll never go back. Following that is what's called the final Galilean campaign, which actually takes us or begins chronologically back in chapter 9 and verse 35. Jesus going about all their cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, seeing the people, he feels compassion on them, right? He says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest, and Jesus does just that. He summons the twelve, he commissions them, he says to them, verse 5, chapter 10, do not go in the way of the Gentiles. And do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the last chance. The last chance. So there is this final preaching campaign, the final Galilean campaign. While they are going to do that, and he tells them, listen, it's going to be a, it's going to be a hard road before you. Verse 16, chapter 10. I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Listen, if they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his house? Listen, if they're saying that about me, what are they going to say about you? While he sends them out, Jesus himself remains occupied. Chapter 11, verse 1, which is the end of the Galilean campaign. As Matthew recounts it, when Jesus had finished giving instructions to his twelve, that is to send them out, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. So Jesus himself remains in the, the northern part around the Sea of, the, of Galilee, preaching and teaching in Capernaum and Bethsaida in those areas. While through his twelve disciples sent out in pairs of two, so at least six you know, groups of evangelists are, are scattered throughout Galilee. One last sweep, kingdom miracles and preaching and, and all of that is there one more time.
And then we arrive at uh, chapter 14, verses 1 to 12, and it's really a parenthesis. You can call it the John the Baptist parenthesis, if you like. It's an interruption. It's an interruption, and it's an important interruption. It actually is a, f- a flashback for part of it. But it, but it serves the purpose, and, it, and, it, and the event signals a very key turning point here in the ministry. After the, after the parenthesis here in, ver, in verse 12, you hit verse 13. Now, when Jesus heard about John, it says, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot with this, from the cities. And, and we're going to talk about the feeding of the 5,000 and all the rest of that. Verse 13 in Matthew needs to be lined up with Mark chapter 6 and verse 30 where Mark says, speaking of the same time period, that the 12 returned from their preaching mission right at this time. So these events come together and Jesus begins his ministry on the move. He takes them, gets in a boat, and moves out. That's the flow. So let's take a look at the drama itself. Broken it down, as I say, into five parts. In part one, I'm calling Herod's guilty conscience. Herod's guilty conscience, verses one and two. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus and said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now, as I said, Jesus had sent out the twelve to to preach in the cities around Galilee in Matthew 10. While he himself is is preaching there and and conducting miracles at the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And And as a result of that, Herod becomes particularly aware of Jesus. And in a way that he has not yet been aware Jesus rises to the, to the radar screen. He becomes more than just a distant, distant blimp. It's, it's a center mass blip on, his, on Herod's radar screen at this point. Herod the Tetrarch, verse 1, also known as Herod Antipas. We talked about him last week, right? Son of Herod the Great, ruled over the the regions of Galilee and Perea from 4 B.C. to A.D. 39. The word tetrarch means a fourth part. Originally, it would have meant that you ruled a fourth part of the kingdom. It's a lesser title than king. It's down the pecking order. Actually, he rules a third part of what was once his father's kingdom, but he's still called tetrarch. It's a Roman title. And he rules under the authority of Rome. They all, he, he liked to be called king, and, and he would have encouraged, he encouraged people to call him king. And the, and the populace would call him king. And in fact, down in verse 9, you can even see that Matthew picks it up and uses it that way. Although he was grieved, the king commanded. So, so he was a tetrarch technically, but, but locally he would have been known as the king. Now, he, he ruled over two regions, right? Galilee in the north, Perea on the, on the east side of the, of the Jordan. Kind of a long, thin strip that approached down the side of the Dead Sea and so forth. 
So he had these two regions that he ruled over, and, and he maintained his control over the regions by having a palace in each. And he would travel back and forth between palaces. And that's how he maintained rule over his realm. One palace was in Tiberias, the city of Tiberias. Actually, he built the city of Tiberias, naming it for Tiberius Caesar to honor him and so forth. And it was founded in AD 18 as his capital city of Galilee. It's on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, about halfway down. A very Roman city. Very, very Roman city. city of Tiberias. Had a fabulous palace there. He lived there part-time. The other palace that he lived in was, was attached to, a, to an ancient fort called uh, Macarus. And this fort was actually built, essentially built by his, his father, Herod the Great. And it was a very, very formidable fortification located on the east side of the Dead Sea in, in the region of Perea. I think I have a picture of that here for you somewhere. Well, that's what's left of it anyway. So uh, go, take me back to that picture, please. There we go. So uh, that's looking from the east, looking west. Across the mount, the, the palace and fortress would have been on top of that very steep mountain. And you can see the Dead Sea in the background. It's a few miles uh, to the east of the Dead Sea. But it's the commanding place. It's the commanding fortification. Macarus protected the southern border of Perea. That was, the, that was the place from which they protected the southern border. Because the kingdom that bumped up against Perea was the kingdom of the Nabataeans, or the ancient Edomites. The ancient Edomites. Nabatea was ruled by a king by the name of Aretas, A-R-E-T-A-S. And I tell you that because he becomes important for the story here. And he ruled his domain, Nabatea, from the ancient mountain fortress called Petra. So I have a picture of Petra here for you. There you go. Okay, so that's Petra. It's about 50 miles south of the, of the bottom of the Dead Sea in, in what is now known as the nation of Jordan. Okay, so you have, you got to get the understanding here. You've got two, two domains banging against each other, Perea and, and Nabatea. They're ruled by Herod Antipas and by King Aretas, and there's a, there's a fortress on the southern border of Perea, and it's the place where he maintains his control. By the way, this, uh, this Aretas, it's just maybe an interesting historical fact, interests me anyway. He, uh, his name appears in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 32. So he appears elsewhere in the scriptures. Now, how did, did Herod specifically become aware? We're back in Matthew 14. How does Herod specifically become aware of, of Jesus' ministry at this point? And we don't know for sure. We don't know for sure. I mean... You know, the king doesn't really get himself too concerned with, with small-time local affairs. It's only when it begins to, to rise to, to a place of, of uh, threat that he begins to take notice. How, he, to, how he, he, he heard about all this, we're not sure. Here, here's a, a possibility. I'll offer it to you as only a possibility. But uh, and it, and to me, it's intriguing. Uh, he had a household steward by the name of Chusa who also had a wife by the name of, or Chusa had a wife named Joanna, and Joanna and several other uh, ladies were providing financial support for Jesus during his Galilean ministry. 
And Luke uh, chapter 8 and verse 3 tells us that. It's really interesting. So, so maybe he heard about Jesus you know, preaching ministry here initially through his, his household uh, steward, Chusa, who heard about it from his wife, who was a follower of Messiah and was doling out money out of the, her pocketbook to keep the whole enterprise rolling. We don't know, but it's intriguing. At any rate, however, however he becomes aware, he becomes aware of Jesus' preaching ministry, of the miracles that are being, being uh, performed, and he reacts in a really, really curious way to it. Verse 2, he says to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. That's an odd thing to say, don't you think? He believes... And Mark adds a little color in his, in his um, parallel account that people were saying, you know, that it, that it was Elijah, it was this person, that person. But some were saying, it's John the Baptist risen from the dead. And, and Herod latches on to that. And that's his answer. He's, he says, this is, this is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead. And, and implied in this is, he's here to torment me. He's here to torment me. Now, why would Herod think that? Well, I think the, the answer has to come in from a couple of places. One is that he's superstitious. He's superstitious. I mean, he may be a, a ruler over the nation of Israel, but he is, he is far from a follower of the God of Israel. He's very pagan. And so he has imbibed a, a lot of his pagan religious commitments, which include the, all of the superstition of people coming back from the dead and haunting you and all of that sort of stuff. You know, pagan people are very, very frightened of the spirit realm. Very frightened. So it may be partially that, but, but it's also, I think, uh, it's a guilty conscience. It's a guilty conscience. And, and why it's a guilty conscience will become obvious as, as uh, Matthew unflo- unfolds, beginning in verse 3, a flashback. Flashback. So it sort of explains Herod's guilty conscience. And that takes me to the next act of the drama, and it's verses 3 to 5. I'm calling it John's gutsy confrontation. I worked hard at this, by the way. I got them all to work. I don't think I had to bend the corners too bad. So, So Herod's guilty conscience, John's gutsy confrontation. John's gutsy confrontation. Flashback, for when Herod had John arrested, he bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, it is not lawful to you for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. Flashback, John had him arrested. Just prior to the beginning of Jesus' Galilean ministry, indeed the event which inaugurated Jesus' Galilean ministry was the arrest of John the Baptist. Herod arrested John while John was preaching and baptizing in the Jordan River right on the border of Perea. John chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, when he arrested him, he cast him into the dungeon at Machaerus. 
He threw him into the dungeon at that fortress at Macarius. You can only imagine what John must have felt. By the way, they have, they have, uh, they've uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered the dungeon there, and it's a deep, dark hole in the ground. So here's a guy who grew up in the wilderness, now confined to a hole in the ground. Threw him in the dungeon. Now Josephus continues to write on this, and he says that the reason Herod arrested John was because that Herod was afraid that John would incite the crowds to rebellion because of John's great influence over them. That's what Josephus says. But Mark and Matthew say that the reason Herod arrested John, right, as it says right here, verses 3 to 5, is because John was continually speaking out against Herod's marriage to Herodias. For John had been saying to him, verse 4, in perfect tense in the Greek, which means he continued to say, this was, this was part of John's continual theme, it is not lawful for you to have her as your wife. You are an adulterer. Now here's the situation, briefly. Herod was married to the daughter of King Aretas. He was married to the daughter of King Aretas. It was a political marriage, and he was married to her. But while visiting Rome, Herod became enamored with Herodias, the wife of his half-brother Philip. Philip, not Philip the Tetrarch. This is a Philip who doesn't really appear here in the, in the account. It's uh, one of Herod's four sons. Three of them end up ruling. We talked about him last week. This is a fourth son called Philip. Philip never got any political boundaries to rule over, but he was very wealthy. His father was rich. He inherited. So Philip lived in Rome the life of leisure of a wealthy man, and he had a, had a wife whose, whose name was Herodias. And Herod became enamored with her while visiting Rome. Well, it turns out that Herodias was also attracted to Herod. She was attracted to Herod. Why? We could only speculate. But judging from her character, I suspect it had something to do with her thirst for power. She had money, tons of money. What she didn't have was power. So she... I believe lusting after power, and by the way, this just sounds like Jezebel, doesn't it? Lusting after power as well as wealth, she schemes with Herod. For Herod to divorce his wife, the daughter of Aretas, and for her to repudiate her husband, Philip, and for the two of them to get married. Herod's wife catches wind of the scheme. She asks her husband for permission to, uh, to leave and go back to the fortress at Marcaris. He gives her permission. She gets back to the fortress and then takes off back to daddy. So she flees to Petra. Now you can imagine how happy daddy is. Okay, King Aretas, he is not happy at all. He is infuriated with the insult that has been laid upon his family. From that time forward, Herod, Antipas, and King Aretas are in a state of hostility that erupts finally into war a number of years later, and Aretas destroys Herod's army, continues to move north, and actually conquers Damascus. And, I, and that's why I believe Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.32, if you go there, you'll see that it says that Aretas is the ruler of Damascus. That's how that all ties together. So which is it? Was, he, was John imprisoned because 
Herod was afraid of, that he would stir up a rebellion or was, was uh, John imprisoned because he was continually speaking out about Herod's Ill, unlawful, illicit marriage? I think the answer is both. The answer is both. Okay. Herod is afraid of John's influence over the people. He is a prophet of God. The people consider him as such. Herod is a king of, our, or a tetrarch, a, 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 although the people called him king, of the Jewish people. And it would be expected that they would at least pay some reverence and deference to the Mosaic law, to the Jewish law. And this is clearly a violation of the Jewish laws against adultery. He's got his brother's wife. So he arrests him. I mean, you can just see it happening. John, he's preaching, he's preaching, and part of his preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And by the way, Herod, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you have this woman? You can't have her. Finally, Herod's had enough. I got to get this guy quiet. Boom, they arrest him. And he wants to kill him. Verse 5. Herod wants to kill him. He wants to put him to death. But he, he's afraid of the public outcry that, that would result from him doing that, so he, he holds back. But his wife Herodias, she's like a black widow. She has no such restraint at all. In fact, Mark chapter 6 and verse 19 says she had a grudge against John. That's how Mark writes it. She had a, a, a grudge against John the Baptist, and she wanted him silenced for good. Because part of the denunciation of, of the unlawful marriage would include, of course, her unlawful repudiation and divorce of her husband and, and marrying her husband's brother and so forth. It's just terrible. And she wasn't going to put up with it. She wants that guy not only off the street, I want him dead. Listen, John was a prophet. He was a prophet. And the role of the prophet among the people of God in, in, the, in the kingdom there was really twofold. It was, it was to speak forth God's word to the people, and it was to speak truth to power. That was the role of the prophet, to speak forth the word of God to the people at large and to speak truth to power. You remember Nathan, the prophet, confronts David over what? The sin of adultery. He speaks truth to power. David repents. Well, John the Baptist speaks truth to power to Herod Antipas, but rather than, uh, than repenting, of course, it ends up with John's execution. And John just merely joins the long line of prophets in the thousand years between Nathan and David and, the, and John and Herod Antipas. The prophets, when they spoke truth to power, ended up dying. They ended up dying. So John just falls right in that, right in that path. So Herod's guilty conscience, John's gutsy confrontation. Wow, we've got to keep going here. Three, Herodias' gruesome counsel. Herodias' gruesome counsel, six to eight. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now, Herod wanted John dead. That was, she was burning up inside, wanting this guy dead. And she's been biding her time for the right opportunity. The opportunity arrives. It's Herod's birthday bash. And by the way, Herod was well known for throwing a party. He, he, um, 
He threw some kind of party. Mark tells us, Mark 6, 21, that at this birthday bash, he invites his lords, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. That would be the Jewish leading men of Galilee. Historically, Herod Antipas was known, and he was known by his contemporaries, as, uh, as the host with the most. It's called the host with the most, huh? This guy knew how to throw a party. His parties were, were wild celebrations that, with, with all of the debauchery of an oriental tyrant. That's the way he threw his parties. So here's the, here's the scene. It's, it's late in the evening. Herod's, uh, he's got nothing left to offer his, his engorged and drunken guests. No, no, no fresh excitement. So it's time to call for the sensuous dancers. And he calls in the sensuous dancers to entertain his guests. Herodias senses the opportunity. She sees this as her opportunity. And so what she does is she, is she, she evidently encourages her daughter, Salome, and then jo Josephus provides the name, who, by the way, was just a teenager, probably between 12 to 14 years old. She, she encourages her young teenage daughter, Herodias' own daughter, born to her from her prior husband, Philip, to, to go out and entertain Herod and his guests, to, to engage in lewd dancing in front of all of these drunken men. Nice lady, huh? Turns out, according to the text here, that uh, Herod is so pleased with her performance that, he, that he, he, he acts like he's some kind of Persian king, you know? I'll give you whatever you want up to half my kingdom. That's what, that's what you know, the Persian kings would say. Makes this extravagant promise, verse 23. Excuse me, Mark 6, 23. Matthew 14, 7. Promise with an oath, give her whatever she asks. She's just a teenager. So she goes back to her mother. So Mark tells us, Mark 6, 24. He goes, she goes back to her mother. She says, Mom, what do I ask for? Verse 8, having been prompted by her mother, she said, give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Mark again adds a little color here, 625. He says that, that she returned immediately to Herod. As soon as she went away, she returns immediately. And she says, give me his head right away. That's what Mark tells us. Give me his head right away. I suspect before he, he sort of sobers up from what it is that he has just agreed to. So this, this teenage girl becomes prostituted to Herodias' diabolical scheme. Fourth, verse 9 to 11, Herod's grievous command. Although he was grieved, says, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, and he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. The birthday, pa the birthday bash is taking place right there in the palace at the fortress, Macarus. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Can't, I, it's hard to imagine that kind of hardness to do that. And Herod, he hadn't seen this coming. That's why it says, I think, in verse 9, he was grieved. 
Because earlier it says, hey, I want, he wanted John dead. But he wasn't going to do it because he was more afraid of, of what the response would be from his subjects if he kills this person who they believe is a prophet of God. So he'd like him dead. He'll settle for him in the dungeon. But Herodias, she wants more than that. And, and so she manipulates her husband into having him executed. And, and Herod is grieved by that. And I think he's grieved by being used. I think he's grieved by, by thinking. And I imagine he's sobered up pretty fast, by the way. Better than a cup of coffee. And I think what Herod is, understands is that what, is a, what has happened, what the, the command that he has given is a complete violation of Jewish law. A complete violation of Jewish law. In Jewish law, you cannot conduct a summary execution without trial. You just can't do that. Beyond the fact that, you know, this has been publicly witnessed, right? There's a whole bunch of people who have heard him give the oath and are going to see the head return and so forth. There's no covering this up. There's no, you know, he was taking a shower and he slipped and he fell and hit his head. This is, this is public. This is a public summary execution. I think Herod fears a riot. He fears a riot. And he's gutless. Unfaithful to God, unfaithful to his conscience, unfaithful to the truth, unfaithful to the basic principles of righteousness. He, he, he decides he's going to be faithful to one thing, right? His half-drunken oath. He wants to appear honorable before all of these guests. So he issues the command. They go to the dungeon. They behead John. They bring the head back on a plate. It's brought to the girl. She gives it to her mother. Wow. Hard, hard hearted. Imagine receiving that kind of grisly gift. Just defied imagination. Fifth, finally, verse 12, the disciples' gentle care. The disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and they reported to Jesus. These disciples, they're, they're braving the possibility of their own arrest. Right? So they go and they, and they request the body. They, they, they need to do for the body of John what is, what is lawful, what is the right thing to do in Jewish custom. That's to bury his body. Give him a proper and decent Jewish burial. So they go in and get his body. One can't read this and not think about Joseph of Arimathea, who will in the same way brave the possibility of being associated with Jesus, and he will go and beseech Pilate for the body of Jesus, right? To Take him down off that cross and give him a proper burial. Later, these same disciples, it says, they, uh, they travel north from Macarus up to Galilee, find Jesus. It takes some time, apparently, and about the time they find him, the, t- the 12 disciples are returning, according to Mark 6.30, from their, their preaching tour. And Jesus puts them in a boat, and they take off. And the ministry on the move begins from that point forward. The shadow of death now hangs over Jesus. Not generally, specifically. And he will spend a year 
moving here, there, everywhere. One step ahead of the hangman, as it were. Now, beloved, the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's ordained means to reconcile the creation to himself. Is that not true? It is by the, the blood of his own son that our sin has been atoned for and, and that we are brought back into a right relationship with our Father, the Creator. And that is predetermined according to, the, to the, the foreknowledge of God, right, in his secret counsels. But that doesn't mean it's not a, a drama filled with pain and emotion. There's a, there's a humanity to all of this. Jesus is not a cardboard cutout. You know, inter-Trinitarian conversation, uh, you need to go into the world and, and, uh, and die for the sin of your people and you'll be raised on the third day and sent back to the right hand, my right hand, and then I'll send you to establish your messianic kingdom on earth. Check. No. No, I'm going to send you and you're going, to, you're going to lay aside all of the prerogatives of your position, deity. You're, you're going to be human. Now, without giving up who you are, you're going to take humanity to yourself. You're going to voluntarily limit yourself as humanity is limited. And by the way, you're not going into this endeavor as, as a king. You don't get to start out on the top of the, you know, the pile. You go in as a, as a slave. And, and you go in to do the, the, the most despicable, to be, to be the recipient of the most despicable action possible. They're going to crucify you. And all your friends are going to betray you. They're going to abandon you. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to see the nation turn away from you and reject you at every turn. You're going to pour yourself out for them, and they're going to spit on you. They're going to pluck your beard. They're going to, they're going to esteem you stricken and smitten of God. They're going to assume that this whole mess has come upon you because you are a wretched sinner, and you are the very holy one. They're going to kill your forerunner in the most terrible way. No compassion, no concerns. And yet out of this, I will raise you from the dead again. You will conquer death and sin. You will sit at my right hand. You will return to establish the great kingdom. You will reconcile my creation back to me. You will do what Adam failed to do. But it's going to be a long and hard path. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is the Jesus we're told in Hebrews, understands what we're going through. Can be, can be touched by our afflictions. 
who lies close at hand, who knows your pain. He knows the temptations. And he's there for you. That is, if you have by faith embraced his sacrifice. If you are relying on anything else, anything else, other than the death, the burial, and the resurrection of this chosen one of God, yea, God himself, then your Bible, the Bible says you're lost. You're going it on your own. You still reside under the condemnation of your creator. And someday you'll face him. And he will cast you into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You will suffer for your sin. And yet, God offers you the gift of life. Will you receive this one by faith? Will you trust in him? Let's pray. Father, the more we come to know the Son, the more we love him. The more we love him, the easier it is to obey him. The more we come to see him for who he really is, the more your spirit works to to transform us and make us like him. Make us love what he loved and hate what he hated. To to unbend and untwist us as we we are bent and twisted in on ourselves, in love with our own autonomy and failing to love you or others. And yet you transform us. You unbend us. You untwist us. You grant us the very life of God. Resurrection life. You enable us to love you and others. You put us back into relationship with our Creator. You make us your sons. And we can call you Abba, Daddy, Father. So thank you that Jesus did not turn back. Thank you and that Jesus saw it all the way through to the end. And thank you that we can understand this morning just a little bit more of what that meant. We praise you in the name of the resurrected one. Jesus our Lord. Amen.